Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. I'm going to read in just a minute from 2 Samuel chapter 18. I want to give a little bit of context for what we're reading tonight. We're on the last Sunday of a several-week worship series called Cancel Culture and King David. Um, Last story we'll read, not the last story about David, but the last one for us, this uh, complicated ancestor of ours who is important in the lineage of Jesus. And we've been asking the question from week to week, what are we supposed to do with this guy? We have seen him as a tender lover to Jonathan, as a ruthless colonizer of other people's land, as an uninhibited devotee of God, a shameless manipulator of God, if he can, a horrible husband, a sexual predator, a textbook case of absolute power corrupting absolutely. And tonight, we see David as a parent, as the father of a prodigal son, who would run out to meet his boy if he could escape the trappings of his position. Here is what you need to know before the reading. David's son, Absalom, has incited a political coup against his father. Absalom has convinced the northern tribes of Israel, remember the ones who were late to recognize David's ascent to the throne after Saul's death, that David is not a good or trustworthy king. He's not wrong. Absalom has an army. David has an army. They are itching for a fight. A content consideration before I read, there will be a mention of sexual violence in the sermon, though not in this reading. We won't dwell on it, but it is a reality, and it's hard to tell David's story without it. So I invite you, please, when the time comes, to take care of yourself accordingly. 2 Samuel chapter 18. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David divided the army into three groups, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go go out with you. But the men said, uh uh, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you, you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by the hundreds and by the thousands. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. 
And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders concerning Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the slaughter there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest claimed more victims that day than the sword. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. A man saw it and told Joab, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, what, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in the weight of my hand a thousand pieces of silver, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai saying, for my sake, protect the young man, Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof, i.e. not had my back. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. He took three spears in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained the troops. They took Absalom, threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. Now, Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself a pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar by his own name. It is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, let me run and carry tidings to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the power of his enemies. Joab said to him, oh, you are not to carry tidings today. You may carry tidings another day, but today you shall not do so because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to a Cushite, go on, tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why? Why will you run, my son, seeing that you'll have no reward for the tidings? Come what may, he said, I will run. So Joab said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran that Cushite. Now, David was sitting between the two gates, and the sentinel went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he looked up, he saw a man running alone. 
The sentinel shouted and told the king. The king said, if he's alone, then there are tidings in his mouth. He kept coming and drew near. And then the sentinel saw another man running. And the sentinel called to the gatekeeper and said, see, another man running alone. And the king said, he is also bringing tidings. The sentinel said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. The king said, oh, he's a good man. He comes with good tidings. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. He prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against the Lord, my Lord, the king. The king said, Is it well with the young man, Absalom? Ahimahaz answered, When Joab sent your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I don't know what it was. The king said, turn aside, stand over there. So he turned aside and stood still. Then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good tidings for the Lord, for my Lord the king. For the Lord has vindicated you this day, delivering you from the power of all those who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man, Absalom? The Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up to do you harm be like that young man. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Look. David's own son wanted to cancel him. Like, depose him from the throne. That's how you did it in the days before Twitter. You raised a seditious army and marched toward the capital. You, you didn't just call out the sins of the power elite. You called out your own father and pledged to do better yourself if given the chance to rule in his place. Absalom knew better than anyone how fucked up his father's house had become. And here we speak of house the way God had spoken of it earlier in 2 Samuel 7. House here meaning David's lineage and legacy, the household of his descendants who were to carry the promise of God's fidelity toward subsequent generations of God's people. David's house was in a shambles. And how? You'll remember that last week we spoke of David's raging disempowerment, a king trapped in a palace while his soldiers fight on his behalf, and his violent assault of a woman, Bathsheba, and his willingness to murder her husband to cover his tracks, and 
his shamelessness in employing his subordinates to do the dirty job. All that was in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. As they say, like father, like son. In 2 Samuel 13, we learn that David's oldest boy, Amnon, is sickened by obsession with his half-sister, Tamar, and petulant that his crown prince status cannot make her his. He summons her, tricks her, rapes her, shames and shuns her. Tamar's brother, Absalom, believes her when she tells him receives her into his home, cares for her. Papa David knows the whole story, does nothing. Two years go by. Absalom and Tamar wait for justice. None comes. Absalom hates Amnon for what he's done. He hates David more for what he has not done. He invites all his brothers to dinner one night and murders Amnon at the table, then flees into exile, hiding from his father's retributive hand. Attempts at mediation in seasons to come are strained, unsuccessful. Absalom loses all faith in David, wages a campaign to unseat him from the throne, believing in his heart that he can do better. He has, after all, avenged Tamar, cared for this vulnerable one. He is the one with a moral compass here. He is the one with the balls and the heart to do what's right. And for a good long while, he does. Absalom travels the countryside of Israel, adjudicating disputes between its citizens, settling lawsuits, always advocating for the little guy finding ways to ensure that everyone in Israel is enjoying the prosperity of the land. He is beloved by all the people for his compassion and his fairness and for his hair. We are told in chapter 14 that Absalom is gorgeous, that his long, luscious hair is part of the appeal of the whole package. And I'm okay with that. Absalom is virtuous and beautiful, a combination that plays well in all the polls. But politics is a dirty business, and doing what's right can sometimes get buried under layers of such awful wrongness that it's hard to remember which guys are the good guys. At a certain point in his seditious campaign, his advisors advise that it will be necessary to discredit King David's um, potency. And what better way to do that than to humiliate him sexually? While David is out of town, his son Absalom takes up with David's harem having sex with them on the palace roof. Oh, that roof, it'll get you into trouble. 
in the sight of all Israel, according to 2 Samuel 16, 22. While it's not clear whether the women are willing co-conspirators in Absalom's cause, it is never good to be used for someone else's climb. All of which leaves us with a second conundrum very much like our first one. How are we meant to think about Absalom? We've already got one fallen hero, David, to contend with. Now our confusion is doubled, or perhaps squared. We hardly know whom to root for as their respective armies prepare to square off. Which of them deserves to reign over God's chosen people? Which of them deserves God's help in the coming melee? Which of their prayerful voices comes clearest to God's heart? The story of the battlefield confrontation in 2 Samuel 18 is part military history and part Grimm's fairy tale. The violence does not stay confined to the battlefield. It spreads, the narrator says, over the face of all the country, in verse 8. And the forest claimed more victims that day than the sword. It sounds like something Tolstoy would say, or perhaps Tolkien, the terrain itself becoming a character in the story, an active participant in the bloodshed, and the poetry of it pushes the account into a fantastical imagining where trees can be agents of entrapment and death. The forest claimed more victims that day than the sword. Indeed, in the very next line, Absalom himself is captured by the branches of a mighty oak, left suspended in harm's way by the fickle mule who walks out from under him. Maybe, maybe he's entangled by his voluminous hair, as problematic as a superhero's cape. But maybe the reported enchantment of this forest is less about what actually happened and more in service of the metaphor we all now can see in our mind's eye. His head caught fast in the oak, verse 9, and Absalom was left hanging between heaven and earth. Freeze. Absalom suspended, hanging between heaven and earth, Absalom pulled heavenward, upward in this three-tiered universe by his better angels with eyes to see what's gone wrong, the injustice done to his sister, the unfairness that plagues his country. Absalom, bound to earth, pulled downward by the gravity of his own rage, held down by the leaden weight of inherited arrogance. The same person, at once a hero and a villain, with a penchant for justice and a willingness to compromise his principles on the way to power, suspended between heaven and earth, held fast between two poles, the righteous and the wrong, the selfless and the self-absorbed, the tender heart and the hardness of same. Oh, Absalom, Absalom. Which pole is the stronger? Which way will he fall? In the 33 verses of chapter 18, it takes about half of the length for Joab and David's other generals to win the war, including Joab's ruthless murder of Absalom. 
The whole second half of the chapter is a rather ridiculously detailed account of a competition between two runners to get the news to the king in Jerusalem. One wonders, why do we care? What difference does it make whether Ahimaaz or the Cushite is faster, from whose lips David will receive the news that his reign is protected at terrible cost? My sympathies lie with the narrator here who has to write something terrible now, who, like a runner from the battlefield, has to relay heart-wrenching news, not to the king, but to us, the king's readers. We already know, of course, that Absalom is dead, his beautiful body spoiled and stained, wrenched from the forest and buried in the earth, suspended no more. What we do not yet know, if we have been lucky in this life, is what this news will do to his father's heart. The narrator procrastinates, delays, avoids with a long tail of an irrelevant foot race. We urge the story to hurry up, move faster, but the storyteller asks us, do you really want to see? Do we really want to see the spark of hope in David's eyes, knowing as he does that his army has been successful in battle? When have they not? But irrationally optimistic that perhaps the enemy's general, his own beloved son, has managed to come through it alive and can come home again to his father's forgiving arms. Do we really want to see his face crumple? melting into misery as he registers reality, the tears that tremble and fall as he turns from both messengers, the faster one and the not-as-fast one, to begin his long lament. Do we really want to hear the whisper that swells into a wail as he retreats from the celebration of victory, a king curled into fetal comfort, his only poetry, the repeated calling of his lost son's name. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Absalom's death was hard, but David's grief, David's grief, this is where we find our own sadness. Who can blame the story for delaying our arrival here? And David, and David was left hanging between heaven and earth. David the poet who taught us how to pray, David, the conniver who tried to handle God, David, the musician who filled the air with praise, David, the warrior who flooded the land with blood, David, the devout who owed his life to the creator, David, the thirsty who took far more than his share, David, the father who raised his children badly. David, the father whose heart 
was shattered by grief. David, hanging between heaven and earth, his whole life a contest between two poles, suspended between all that is God and all that is not, suspended between his better angels and his own low-down instincts, suspended between two selves, his best self on his best day, shining like the sun, reflecting God's own glory, and the gravity-bound self with dirty hands and a heavy heart. The apostle Paul says it's true of all of us. We are all of us in Adam, he said, meaning that we hold in common with our archetypal ancestor the human legacy of self-concern and self-reliance and self-determination and self-deception. But, but, Paul said, we are all of us also in Christ, a state of transcendence, a potential of release from our lowest state, an invitation to participate now in the perfection of our salvation. This, this is the human condition, said Paul, as here in Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The one man, Adam, the one man, Christ, ourselves in between, suspended, hanging between heaven and earth with Absalom, with David, with the rest of the human family, world without end. Amen, amen. Here is what I long for. I long for time, time enough for the telling of long, complex stories with multiple points of view. I long for an appreciation of ambiguity in the relating of someone else's experiences. I long for interpretive generosity in the judgment of other people's words and actions. I long for the possibility of redemption, for a process by which real wrongs can be confessed and reparations made. I long to be called in rather than called out. I long for the legacy of the human family to include the competing truths about our ancestors, the slaveholders, the colonizers, the warmongers, the alcoholics and the addicts, the bigots, the hypocrites, the graspers, the gossips, those blind to their privilege and willfully ignorant of power differentials, those who cheated the system and those who learned to use it for their own benefit, our ancestors who were also poets and prayers and writers and explorers 
and builders and peacemakers and lovers and parents and friends. I long to see each human being, even and especially the one who has just done something inexcusable, something mean, something low, something harmful, to see them hanging by their hair from the branches of a mighty oak, suspended between heaven and earth, in Adam, in Christ, pulled and stretched, held in place by the forest of God's own planting. And I long to stop Joab's hand, interrupt the thrust of the spears, run faster than I have ever run to tell David that his son is coming home. I long to hear David sing a different song, one that is filled with the poetry of possibility for himself, for his beloved child, for every one of us. Like the 130th Psalm, perhaps, where it matters not who we have become. It matters only who God has always been and continues to be. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, he sang, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord There is steadfast love. With the Lord is great power to redeem. It is the Lord who will redeem us from all our iniquities. A song of confession. A song of assurance. A song that says we are all vulnerable, any of us in danger of cancellation at any time. A song that promises that God holds us fast, does not let us go. Kind of like this next one we're about to sing. Church, my name is Lance, he, him. It's my job tonight to, uh, to say something about Jesus. It was the first, but not the only time, a son of David hung from a tree, suspended, helpless between heaven and earth, despised, vulnerable, pierced. According to the Gospel of John, Jesus, whom we remember at this table, said of himself that when he was lifted up in this particular way, he would draw all people to himself. It has been a job of work for Christianity to figure out exactly what he meant by that. And to this day, there is no real consensus. The Romans had their own reasons for suspending someone in this gruesome manner. The cross was a form of capital punishment, but like everything the Romans did, it was conducted, engineered, if you will, in just this way for reasons that were carefully calculated. The crucified were suspended between heaven and earth so that they could be seen. They were stripped naked to maximize shame. They were pierced and hung in a way that caused gradual suffocation 
such that their social and physical death would be prolonged enough, public enough, painful enough, and terrifying enough to make the largest possible impression on the subjugated and intimidated onlookers. As for the crowd of his co-religionists and the VRPs who colluded in this ultimate cancellation, we are less sure about their reasons. One of the most convincing explanations ever offered is that this was yet another example of a thing that people in every culture have done since the beginning of time. The scapegoat mechanism, it is called. The theory is that there is some unavoidable amount of anxiety just free floating around in human society. It is the sum of all our fears, anxiety about love, anxiety about sex, anxiety about our limits, our inability to save ourselves or get for ourselves what we want or even need. Anxiety, let's face it, about death. Not the death that comes once at the end of life, but mortality itself, the death that haunts every day, the figure that lingers in the shadows at the edge of life's party all evening long, reminding us, even as we dance, that the music eventually must stop and the lights go down. All that anxiety, anxiety about grades and climate change and aging parents and credit card debt and bodily decline and haters, and gerrymandering, and breakthrough infection. Anxiety about insomnia that leads diabolically to insomnia. God help us. Anxiety about anxiety, right? It builds up like steam in a pressure cooker, society itself becomes a bulging bomb about to go off unless we somehow find a way to release this unbearable pressure. Enter the scapegoat. Here is one person we can blame, one place to put all our shame and fear and guilt and angst. We can agree on little else, but here is a thing that we can all get on board with, that this one unacceptable fuck must be hung or burned or banished or ratioed. It will be like turning a valve and releasing the pressure. What desperately needed release. What lovely relief as we all pile on in common cause. The Pax Romana is restored. The yawning mall of our collective anxiety is satiated. And only one casualty. Until the pressure slowly, inevitably, begins to build again. But what if? What if the story were told differently this time? What if we experienced the same mechanism the scapegoat mechanism, through the lens of the despised one? What if the goat to be scaped were the unlikely protagonist of an entire religious tradition? 
What if his cancellation were the epic climax of a daring mission, the mysterious unfolding of a bold conspiracy, a plan to expose the scapegoat mechanism in all its absurdity once and for all? What if he were suspended between heaven and earth and then pierced and dragged down to the ground and then buried beneath the ground a large stone to seal the deal, just like the story always goes? But then, what if something else happened? Something so unprecedented that we had to invent a word for it. Something that calls the whole cycle of anxiety and groupthink and violence into question. What if he should rise? Where would that leave us? Where would that leave us if not suspended ourselves between heaven and earth, wondering if maybe all is not lost, trying to decide whether it is possible for people like us to believe something like this. Let's bow. God, we pray as one of the people that met Jesus prayed once. We believe. Help our unbelief. Help this meal to become to us in faith the body and blood of the risen one. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.